welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is week 39, Kinesthetic Kubrick. Yes, it is. And I can't even spell that word. So what does it mean, Jonathan? <laughs> yeah, well, um, kinesthesis is basically just the idea of being like mentally aware of uh mostly it's used in terms of like being aware of your own body parts and how you're moving and stuff like that. Uh, but this week we're using it in terms of Kubrick's ability to finely and meticulously manipulate his camera as basically an extension of his body, an extension of his art. And we're going to talk about how uh, painstaking that is for his crew and everyone involved um, because he always had a very precise idea of what he wanted and would do whatever and take however long it took to get what he wanted. Right. He was a uh, master filmmaker, a genius, but uh, sometimes he could definitely seem like a mad genius to the person he he was asking to do the hundredth take of a shot for. Um, But before we dive into his work, let's dive into who we're talking about. Um, So Stanley Kubrick, even though I thought he was British for the longest time, was actually born... Spent a lot of time in England. <laughs> spent a lot of time in England. He, he preferred it over America, which, fair enough. Um, he was born in 1928 in Manhattan, and he started out in his career as a uh, photographer and a photojournalist. Um, even as a young kid, like he would try to uh, make photos and sell them. Um, he was working for a magazine for a time until he started making short documentaries and indie films with his friends that he tried to sell to uh, uh, distribution companies and local theaters around New York. Um, and eventually some of the indie films got bigger and bigger until he worked with Kirk Douglas on one. And Kirk Douglas brought him in to direct Spartacus, which if you look at his body of work, does is, is like the one that sticks out as the least like a Stanley Kubrick film. It's a really good film, but it's it's much more of like a, a Kirk Douglas film than it is a um, a, a Stanley Kubrick film. But that was that was really his big break. At that point, he had made a major uh, film in the Hollywood industry, and he was good to go um, to start making films with MGM and let MGM and MGM would uh, indulge him more often than not with his really long shoot schedules and his large production budgets um, and his uh, hit and miss slow burn hits that he would crank out. Um, but speaking of those slow burn hits, what are we talking about this week, Jonathan? Yeah, so to start off, we're going to talk about Dr. Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. And the movie does not really have two titles. That's just the whole title. Um, and that came out in 1964, and we start to see kind of the full extent of Kubrick's auteurism in this film as the uh, director and writer, and I believe producer as well, um, is based on a novel called Red Alert, uh, and this film is a war satire. But the book was not a satire. It was a very serious um, war novel that Kubrick uh, adapted into a comedy, and we'll talk about that. But it was nominated at the Oscars for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Right. And over the course of his career, I think Kubrick was nominated for like a total of 13 Oscars, but he only won 
one, and that was for 2001, A Space Odyssey from 1968, and he it won for Best Special Effects. Um, this is a, is a film that was based on a short story uh, titled The Sentinel. Um, it was also uh, written, kind. the script for the film was kind of written in tandem for the book, 2001, A Space Odyssey by Arthur C. Clarke. Um, like him and Kubrick worked on both at the same time together. Um, and it was it was also nominated at the Oscars for Best Director, Best Writing, and Best Set Design. And then we bring it home with The Shining from 1980, uh, Kubrick's kind of epitomal horror film that is unlike any other horror film or really any other movie. Um, it was not really received very well upon release and has since kind of grown to cult and commercial uh, hit and almost like mega recognition status. And it's based loosely on the Stephen King novel. And we'll talk about how Kubrick uh, likes to treat his source material um, and hint Stephen King hates the movie, so we'll get into all of that. Yeah, yeah, he would. Uh, Stephen King would eventually go on to help produce a 1990s version of The Shining that was apparently much more accurate to the book. Um, and from what I've heard, I haven't seen it. Just as good, um, or at least not a bad movie, uh, but nowhere near as legendary as the 1980 The Shining. So let's get into it. Alex, kick us off with Doctor Strange Love. Or, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. I will, Jonathan, because this reminds me of how I learned to stop worrying and love Pixar like 20 weeks ago. Um, shameless plug. Shameless plug. Uh, and yeah, we, we did reference the title of this film. And it is... It's a crazy movie. And I feel like, you know, it's... Uh, I thought a while ago that when we eventually got to this film that I would have to kind of, you know, do the whole setup on what the living in the Cold War was like when, you know, you had to live under the threat of maybe being, you know, bombed by a nuke at any given moment. Um, but, you know, with current news events, it's a little more relatable, a little more timely, kind of. But, uh, but yeah, this, this film stems from that fear and Stanley Kubrick uh, reckoning with that fear in himself. Um, and it tells the story of how uh, the world might end. And it's not with uh, anybody being evil. It's with uh, just well, human incompetence. And except for one, one evil decision, basically. Yeah, yeah. So General or Ripper. Or deranged. Yeah. So General Ripper... <laughs> Um, who is the commander of an Air Force base, uh, decides that he is going to nuke the uh, Russians, the Soviet Union, because he believes they're tampering with his bodily fluids. Um, <laughs> but Alex, can generals command nukes to be um, sent out? Well, they can't anymore. Actually, like literally the, uh, the Air Force... Um, the the U.S. military changed some of its policies after this movie was released to make sure that nothing that you see in the film could happen, um, and they helped idiot-proof a lot of the positions in of authority throughout the U.S. military, except for uh, the presidency, um, which you know you just kind of have to rely on who the president is at any given time. 
But anyway, General Ripper uh, sends this uh, commands a wing of his squadron or however it's broken down. I don't know um, to to go out and bomb uh, bomb the Russians. So a bunch of planes are heading towards the Soviet Union carrying nuclear payloads, and they're they're planning on dropping them on the Soviet Union. And the plan they receive. Um, like the code command they receive tells them that they that Washington has been bombed already, even though it hasn't in in reality. But the code they receive tells them that Washington has been bombed and go bomb the USSR right now. Um, so they're going off to do that. Um, at the same time, uh, so Peter Sellers is basically the lead of this film because he plays. Uh, like three different roles? I, well, yeah, it's three, right? Three roles. He plays three roles. It was roles. originally going to be four, but he ends up in three in the movie. Yeah, I'm kind of happy about that because Slim Pickens does a really good job as uh, Commander or uh, Major King Kong, who is yeah. uh, the pilot of the uh, of the uh, plane whose story we follow in the film. But Peter Sellers, uh, one of the characters he plays, is a British major on the officer exchange program who's on the base with General Ripper and he is trying to be the sane one and calm the situation down and get General Ripper to give him the recall code. At the same time, um, all this is happening, uh, people are meeting in the war room in Washington, D.C. with all of the the top brass, uh, the president, uh, the secretary of war actually no not the secretary of war he's like in mexico or something they addressed that right at the start but peter sellers also plays the president um who is trying to be sane and rational but all his his top general he is the most sane of all the characters yeah 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 him him and the him and the the british major also played by um uh, Peter, Peter Sellers, Sellers are probably like the two biggest voices of reason. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you know, Peter Sellers also plays Dr. Strangelove, who is also in the war room. Um, it doesn't even come up in the film until later on uh, as the war room kind of deals with, you know, just the whole, you know, a crisis is broken out. They are trying to deal with it. They are deciding whether or not to fully commit to attacking the USSR or to try to recall the wing uh, they settle on reaching out to the Russians and being like, hey, one of our guys went rogue. Um, let's fix this. Uh, and the Russian uh, ambassador, who is secretly taking pictures of the uh, of the war room the entire the time. The big board. <laughs> the big board. Um, and Premier Kissoff, who was on the phone. Um, and these are just like ridiculous names. These are like Mel Brooks levels of ridiculous names that we get through here but you know the crisis just escalates and escalates and it's it's very comedic especially once dr strangelove who is like a crypto nazi um with a hand he can't control that keeps like hailing hitler and he's trying to keep it from hailing hitler it's it's very funny it's it's a hard story to retell in a comedic manner here but uh that's that's kind of the basic uh gist of what you would see in this film and uh, you just kind of have to rely on the over-the-top performances that Kubrick like ringed out of these actors um, to to get them to be just so ridiculous and make this crazy movie work. Yeah, and essentially we're operating in this movie in three 
uh, arenas, which we keep cycling through. Uh, one is one of the aircraft that's on its way to bomb Russia. They're doing the right thing as far as they know. Like they've been given orders. They're following their orders. Eventually their communications go down. So once things start changing, they don't get the message, um, which is part of the danger. The second area is um, Jack D. Ripper's uh, office with um, the British general from the officer exchange program. Uh, and then the last one is in the war room. So we're kind of cycling through all of those and then all of the over the top performances and ridiculous uh, situations like the president and the uh, the Russian president kind of having this conversation like they're old pals or or almost like almost like a relationship kind of a thing is really funny like no i could be just as sorry as you yes okay we're both sorry <laughs> oh my gosh um, their phone conversation it's like it's he's, amazing it's like it's like he's talking to his his wife or his girlfriend who he's making up with a fight after with exactly and that's so that's kind of the the something i want to tie in from last week looking at the great dictator because these are we got two war comedies satires back to back um and this one doesn't have any moment of gravity it's all just portrayed through the the satire um but the thing that we saw last week is this trivialization of something that's so um i mean literally world endingly bad and the so the story goes that whenever um the uh, I forget what, who the other writer was, but the Stanley Kubrick and his writer on the film were trying to write this this movie as a serious war drama and portray like how dangerous this is. But as as the more they got into it, the more they started cracking themselves up because that's all you can do when you realize that, oh, this is probably could happen. Um, and so the the just kind of gut reaction is to laugh and to counter that in your own psyche. And so eventually they just couldn't fight it and they turned the whole movie into a comedy. Um, and uh, so just the the it really reminded me of like an Oscar Wilde type satire where nobody really takes anything seriously and and things keep getting misconstrued and turned on their head and stuff like that. Um, but it's just. It's so the the contrast of how trivially everyone takes things, except for like Jack the Ripper, who takes things extremely seriously, things that are like the most crazy conspiracy theories about the Russians trying to infect our bodily fluids. Oh, yeah, um, he's just nuts. <laughs> that's like the only thing that's taken seriously. And then the the fact that this doomsday machine that is literally built to wipe out all life on the planet might be destroyed is like handled with the most flippancy. All of these contrasts are what makes the movie so funny. Yeah, I think my favorite part of the film is when uh, the Americans learn about um, the doomsday machine the Russians have have built and uh, the the lead... Um, the the lead american general in the room who's just been ridiculous he's the big counterpoint in the room to the president general buck turgidson yeah general buck um he he freaks out at the news because what about the doomsday gap like he's <laughs> he's worried about the gap in technology which is funny because 
you know, that was, I mean, that was literally a time where people were worrying about all these different gaps, you know, is there the, the weapons race, the, the space race, the nuke race, the, um, proxy war race, which I don't think was a term, but that's just my own little cynical comment. Um, but the scary thing is as ridiculous as all of the situations are, they're based on a kernel of, um, possibility and like human error that isn't, you know, beyond the pale of, um, of possibility, which, you know, makes it both scary and terrifying and also like, uh, all the more funny at the same time. And, and kind of, you know, the sense of like, you can't, you know, nukes, nukes are here. Nukes are here to stay. And you, you can't, you, you can't worry because if, if the world's going to end, the world's going to end. So, I don't know, maybe kind of a humorous, that, that dark humorous take on the title that we get in the title is how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Yeah, and it's almost like a statement from Kubrick to Kubrick, because like you said, this comes out of his own fear of war and our our growing capabilities for mass destruction. And it's almost like, like, like you said, this is his way of kind of venting those fears and coming to terms with them in a way but here's another interesting thing. Why do you think Dr. Strangelove is the the main part of the title when he's such a small part of the movie? I haven't thought about it too much, but do you have any speculations? Uh, well, uh, I think that it's because of what the strange love in the movie is. Uh, and I think, you know, a, a big part of the, the strange movie, love of war, the strange love of war, the love of weapons, the love of um, power, which is a strange love to have because of how destructive it is. Um, but at, at the, yet at the same time, it's one that every, almost everyone you see in the film has. Um, and, and a lot of the film is kind of an indictment of, um, a certain brand of toxic masculinity that you see in, uh, the arms race, like, oh, well, my gun's bigger. You know, it's a metaphor for something else. Um, and even like the opening scene of the film where it's like a military plane refueling a military plane is shot in such a way to be uh, fairly suggestive. Yeah, plus um, the very romantic <laughs> music playing underneath of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's, it's hilarious and it helps set the comedic tone of the film and kind of let you know that like this is going to be ridiculous strap in and get ready for that but at the same time like you know you see this overuse of weaponry and um uh compensatory compensatory compensationally <laughs> compensationally large weapons like you know uh general ripper's wall is just packed full of guns like he's got gun 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 all yeah. over that and wall. then he pulls out a a basically a Tommy gun out of his golf bag and he's just got like this huge belt of, of bullets and you know, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. And if you, when he, when he finally tells, um, the British major where he came up with his idea that the, um, the, uh, uh, the Russians were messing with his bodily fluids, he tells, he tells him that it was in, um, the act of making love, or something, you you know what I mean. I, I might be paraphrasing, but you get the drift. And essentially, you know, like his his fear of the Russians is stemming from his own male impotence, and so so he's literally compensating. He's not even like 
Yeah, it's very, very, it, it's uh, very straightforward. straightforward. Yeah, and you know, going back to the whole gap thing, like you know, that's that's a whole big measurement contest that's going on. Um, yeah, sure. There's you know geopolitical um, uh, ramifications wrapped up in it, but there it's also like there's this strange love of wanting to be the bigger man, the bigger country, the one with the bigger bomb, the one with the better doomsday weapon. Um, uh, Twitter wars with the North Korean leader, like, you know, all these things that are literally just uh, measurement contests and, you know, mas- masculinity offs that are it's just such a strange thing to love doing, but uh, they do them anyway, and it can, it, it risks the world. And then all kind of culminating with uh, Major King Kong straddling the nuke as it's dropped out of the airplane and falling, riding it like a bull in a rodeo. Um, and it just kind of like ties everything together. Um, but it also transitions us into the thing that we'll be talking about a lot today, which is Kubrick's autourism and how demanding he was of getting exactly the vision that he wanted on film and into the movie. Right, right. And, um, his technique essentially when it came to this film was to push the actors to the point um, where they would just do, they were tired, they were fatigued, they were broken down and they would do ridiculous things on camera. um, Partly out of, I think partial insanity, like temporary insanity, maybe clinically, but also like out of attempt, uh, uh, think, think, uh, the gladiator. Are you not entertained? Like, are you not satisfied with my performance <laughs> by now, Kubrick? Let me go home. Um, it's and so good mind Führer. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> that, that's just a brilliant performance. I, I, I don't even know if they did a lot of takes for Peter Sellers because Peter Sellers is just brilliant. Um, also fun fact, the, the black glove he wears is actually, um, the the glove that Stanley Kubrick would use on set to adjust lights um, because he was so fastidious, you know, producer, writer, director, still adjusts some lights himself, Um, you know, exactly the way he wants it. And that's one of the things we see from his history as a photojournalist um, is that, like we talked about a little bit with um, Kenneth Branagh, Branagh comes from the acting side, but Kubrick is a highly, highly technical director, like the definition of a technical director. Um, He knows everything about how the camera works, what lenses to use, what certain lens at a certain setting is what the effect will be. And so um, he does push his actors very hard, but he is always pushing his crew to get uh, everything exactly right because he has in his mind exactly what the camera should be set to, where it should be moving, how it should be stopping, how it should be framing, um, and the lights and everything. So that's another thing that we're going to see going forward into the next two movies specifically. Yeah, and uh, you know, even uh, George C. Scott, who plays General Buck Turgenson, uh, he complained a lot during the making of the movie and right after the movie about how awful it was to work with, or how hard it was to work with Kubrick. Um and, you know, another another situation where uh, there would be a um, hundred takes for a shot is the, the there's the situation where General Buck Turgenson is screaming about something or another. I can't even remember. Um, I think it was the Doomsday about. Gap. 
<laughs> Probably. And he, he just does like this tuck and roll. Like he, he like trips, falls, rolls yeah, over, swings back up. up. And he, it's like he didn't even notice he fall he fell down. He, he's just over the top. And that was one of those situations where he was pushed and pushed and pushed. And the, the trip and fall wasn't even planned, but it just happened. And it looked great on film. And Kubrick was like, that's what I wanted. And yeah, he just done. rolled with it. And, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, George C. Scott would later go on to look back and say that his performance in Dr. Strangelove was one of his favorites, if not his favorites. Um, so, you know, he might, Kubrick might be exacting. Well, he definitely is exacting. Um, and it, it looks a lot from the outside like he's crazy uh, and he might be a little crazy, but he, uh, he definitely gets exactly what he wants um, out of his actors, even though some of them might resent him for it. You know, Slim Pickens, who was born in California and sounds more Texan than either you or I do. And we right. both grew up in Texas. Um, he was, was originally uh, asked to play uh, the Scatman Carruthers role in The Shining, uh, Caloran. But he, he uh, said that he would only do it on the condition that uh, Kubrick wouldn't ask him to do over a hundred takes and so Kubrick was like I'm gonna find somebody else um, but even then like Slim Pickens uh, performance here is amazing and yeah. and the, the the bomb dropping shot is brilliant I feel like that's that's kind of what brings the whole movie uh, together that's kind of the uh, the plot climax the plot climax right there yeah and one of the funny things about Slim Pickens character as the Texan pilot of the plane that we follow as it goes to drop off its bomb load is that that is the role one of the other roles that Peter Sellers was supposed to play and I heard one story that uh when filming the 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 first thing they were going to film I guess was the dropping the bomb and during one of the many takes or right before the take uh Peter Sellers fell off and hurt his ankle um and so he wasn't able to finish off that shoot and then I also saw something. I'll see if I can dig it up and put it in the uh, in the blog post. Is uh, that Peter Sellers basically said, "I can't get this accent down. I can't do the Texan accent." Um, he he does the the normal American presidential accent really well, uh, and of course his British accent for the British general is great. But apparently he couldn't nail that Texans that Texas Southern twang, and uh, so. He's not in that role, but Slim Pickens did a great job, uh, however demanding it might have been. Yeah, yeah. It's actually interesting because that might have led into Kubrick's later um, emphasis on uh, actors' accents being as natural as possible um, and how, how hard he would... Uh, he, I mean, he put a lot of effort into his casting process, but he really cared about um, the accents because he wants... You know, so many times he wants to break down the actors, so he wants the natural accent um, to be appropriate. You know, if you know, just zooming forward really fast because this is a little tidbit. But uh, the casting for The Shining, when they were looking for the kid for Danny, uh, they they narrowed down the search area for the child by looking in. Uh, I want to say it's Colorado. Because it was the midpoint between where Shelley Duvall grew up and where um, Jack Nicholson grew up, so he wanted the accent, the natural accent of the kid, to be halfway between 
um, the two actors. So it, it would sound um, more appropriate. And, and that's where the movie takes place in Colorado. <laughs> also, that's where the movie takes place. And the kid, you know, is just a brilliant casting choice. And we'll talk a little bit more about his performance and the things that he just straight up invented that made right. it into the film uh, once we get to that section. Um, but let's close Dr. Strangelove by talking about uh, the final sequence of the film, which is the world exploding. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just sequence of... I don't even know if the bombs at the end are diegetic bombs or if they're like like bombs that are actually within the story because only one bomb was dropped and that one bomb is supposed to be enough to set off the doomsday machine which is like enough to essentially uh, radiate the world. That's how the doomsday machine works. It doesn't blow up the world. It radiates the world to death. Um, yeah, I so thought it was like, like a connection of a series of underground bombs. So I think it was like a bunch of explosions going off. Oh, okay. All okay. around. It was like a center point that had basically, I guess, trip wires to a bunch of centers of bombs that were enough to radiate the entire world. Okay, I gotcha. That would make sense. That would be spread out. Um, and then but, that's why we get a montage of just like, I guess, every image of archival atomic bomb testing footage that Stanley Kubrick could get his hands on that just yeah. goes for minutes and minutes. Yeah, it just goes on forever. Um, it's set to to um, a song. Uh, I don't even know who sings it, but it's, it's We'll Meet Again, which is horribly ironic. Um, right. But also, like, laughingly ironic and strangely beautiful to watch this blowing up sequence, you know, it's weird because it's also it's in part terrible it's a part beautiful you know the whole contradiction is the point um you know contradiction is where we uh off, you know almost always find some form of meaning so i, I feel the like other it's thing a to point, point out button on the end of this film yeah and the other thing to point out that we probably should have said at the beginning but this film is in black and white so again when you're doing a film that deals so much with contrasts you can't go wrong with black and white because that's literally just it it accentuates all the contrast because the entire visual medium is just a contrast between white and black. So yeah, and I've read this. I don't know how accurate it is, um, but it sounds right uh, that at this by by this point in time, by the mid sixties, um, black and white was only really used for dramas like film noirs. Um, it wasn't really used for a comedy. So the whole black and white choice is, again, kind of another contradiction. Um, you know, you expect at this point, apparently, you an audience would expect for a black and white film to be darker and more serious and more, you know, skewed towards the film noir genre. When in reality, it's this it's this just satirical off the wall comedy. Right. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Cool. So on the note of bombs blowing up the world let's talk about bombs flying spinning around the world to the blue danube uh jonathan do you want to set us up for 2001 a space odyssey uh yeah so let's try this so the first time that i watched this movie back in college basically you come away with it it, it kind of falls into three or four different sections um 
And this film actually has title cards, which we'll talk about in this one and the next one that kind of uh, divide it up into sections. But just thematically, we start with a scene called The Dawn of Man, which is about these apes, kind of these two warring tribes of apes. Um, and then all of a sudden, like one of these tribes sees this giant uh, black metallic ish shiny looking rectangle. It's just a it's a rectangle. Um, what's a 3D rectangle? It's a monolith. It's a monolith. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so we have the monolith and they're all very interested in it and touching it. And we get the creepiest music in the world um, under it. Oh, and then Fustra. I love it. <laughs> and then one of the uh, apes, the next uh, I don't know how long it's been after this, but picks up a bone and learns that he can use it as a club and kills another ape. And uh, we have very uh, music that builds to this moment. And then the ape throws this bone, which has become uh, essentially the first weapon. And we do one of the famous, most famous match cuts in history from the bone to what I have just learned is apparently a nuke floating through space. I thought it was a spaceship and it really doesn't uh, distinguish what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they don't do... They they kind of fail to mark it on screen because um, it just looks like spaceships orbiting the Earth. Um, but in the script, it was uh, specified by Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke that these were nukes uh, floating around the Earth. These were nuke platforms owned by various countries. Um, and I think the metaphor they were or the, uh, the idea they were trying to create was that the uh, drive towards new weaponry, advanced technology... Um, but the, the idea that most audiences came away with was just the advance of technology, which, you know, I guess works. It still works. Um, yeah, it's got a little bit less punch to it. Yeah. 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 And I mean, audience interpretation, um, you know, that kind of overruled it in the long run and that's, it, they don't feel like nukes anymore, but that was the original intention for whatever that's worth. So that brings us into the second part of the film, which starts with um, this spaceship docking into a big space station to lots of very beautiful classical music, Blue Danube. And uh, so basically this team of astronauts is briefed that there is a new discovery found on the moon and this team goes and finds it and it is the monolith again. And then we cut from that to 18 months later, uh, this giant spaceship um, heading to Jupiter. And eventually we'll find out that they're trying to find um, find out what the monolith from 18 months earlier uh, was trying to communicate with. But on the voyage, this artificial intelligence computer called the HAL 9000 decides that human error is going to ruin the mission and tries to take things into its own hands. One of the astronauts has to deal with that. And then in the final section of the film, um, uh, uh, Dave, the astronaut, um, he... I prefer goes, to think of it as a cosmic zoo. He... Yeah, it's it's a little bit like um, people are like all over from the Twilight Zone. But after going through a lot of lights and crazy colors, he ends up in this very white room. And in a relatively short sequence compared to the rest of the film, uh, 
he ages um, completely to a very old man, and then he sees the monolith and turns into a space baby, and then the movie ends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I th- Spoiler I the, alert. I believe most people refer to it as a star child, but it's become my personal like favorite thing to refer to it as a space baby. Right. So I know I've gone through the whole movie, but it does not like diminish the experience of watching this film because as we'll talk about specifically with this film and the shining, the, these movies are driven by their atmosphere and by like we talked about a lot with uh Tarkovsky's stalker back in our Russia episode on the world tour the the interest comes from the way that is presented and the way that the themes and the uh, tone and the filmmaking mix together. Um, and so it feels very slow, but it's all building um, this sense of thematic uh, mom- momentum or this momentousness uh, that something big is being grasped at. Even though you can't quite put your finger on it the first or second or third time that you watch the movie. Yeah, yeah, because this this film is definitely about um, a, a very it's a very thematic film. It's about a big idea, um, and it's about kind of looking towards the future of humanity and um, technology, what, technology, and wondering what the uh, next step in the human evolution will be. Um, is there alien life? Is it guiding us? You know, there's a lot of questions put, built into this uh, this film. And if you look at it from like a plot perspective, um, not a whole lot happens. Like for a two yeah, and a half hour that's film. That's what struck me on this watch. Yeah, yeah. It's all very built out into these long moments of either um, mystery, tension, or wonder. And we'll see this again in The Shining. That Stanley or just Kubrick... ordinariness. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. Um, we'll see this in uh, in The Shining as well. Is that Stanley Kubrick's um, what everyone refers to as his slow pacing is is very good at building tension and building atmosphere and building um, emotion, um, and it works very well in a space odyssey. Uh, whether or not it be you kind of like sinking into the world of these uh, apes at the beginning or uh, sympathizing with uh, the the astronauts who are fighting against Hal on the spaceship, who you basically hear speak like 10 words in total. Like they don't speak a lot. You just right. hear them breathe a whole lot. Um, but the moments are stretched out to this point where they're, they're, there's the struggle that is happening in every shot um is is all that more manifest and all that more hard to struggle through and it helps build the tension a whole lot and on the other side of that there's also especially towards the beginning of the space sequence after the dawn of man by the way the first uh dialogue bit comes in 25 minutes after the start of the film which must be some kind of record for a movie where being silent is not a gimmick in it um but it uh there are a lot of sequences that are very long and they're not tense sequences. It's just, it's almost kind of flaunting uh, the space visual effects kind of a thing. I mean, this film won for it and they're done really well, but the way that the uh, uh, the gravity effects are done and how they have people on two different like gravity planes and then they'll walk and join each other. Um, 
by going on the ceiling and on the walls, just the way that the camera is placed in the set and the way the set is moved and stuff all convey this really cool um, kind of epitomal science fiction vibe to it. Uh, so, and then also those kind of long drawn out moments build, even though they're not tense, but they build up and then eventually the more ordinary scenes get more tense as we get into the ship with Hal, because we start to realize that Hal is everywhere. So there are no down moments, you know, there, you are always being watched by Hal. And if Hal's your friend, that's great. But if Hal is turning against you, then you have to watch your back as they end up having to do once they realize that Hal is lying to them and maybe has alternate intentions than they put him on board for. Um, and it doesn't necessarily work out when they decide to just stay in the space pod, even though it's facing Hal. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's um, If I had to describe the experience of watching this film, either for the first time or any of the other times I've watched it, um it would be it would just be wonder like the 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 perfect combination of um the big mysterious themes that are brought up over the course of the film combined with just the stunning visuals where kubrick's technical perfection is just you know it's it's on par with none here like it is it is incredible and perfectly suited for this film you know, they combine to create that sense of wonder where I feel like I could just stare at it for the entirety of the film with probably either the Blind du- Danube or uh, Zarathustra playing in the background. Um, hell, just play the screeching, piercing noise, the monolith on the <laughs> moon makes. could probably stare yeah. at this for a long time. It's just so visually, like, perfect. And the, the, the special effects that went into it are just phenomenal considering this is uh almost all done without computers i think they use computers a little bit to do animation here and there but um but you know almost everything you see is is practical um whether or not it be like a rear screen projection like when uh floyd is in the phone booth talking to his daughter who's actually stanley kubrick's daughter by the way um and the earth is rotating out the background of the window um that's that's a nice little rear projection um the yeah which we saw in metropolis and modern times we did we did um and actually you know while we're talking about projection kubrick uses a really interesting technique in the dawn of man sequence um he uses front projection he uses uh which normally you would never do because the actors would cast a shadow onto the screen um, but the way it was, they, they shot it, uh, was by using a, uh, one way mirror, two way mirror. I probably using the wrong term. The one that you have in a police inf- interrogation room where you can see through one side and the other side just reflects light. Um, so you can see through one side, the other side's a mirror. So they would set that up at a 45 degree angle to the, uh, to the, to the stage, the actors, because this was all filmed on a set. Um, except for the backdrops, which another fun fact, all the backdrops are still photos. They're not actually, they're not actually filmed. They're all still photos. Um, so the, the 45 degree one way, two way mirror was set up. Uh, and then the camera would be shooting straight through it, uh, recording the, the footage that was coming in, uh, the light that was coming in. 
and the projector would be set up uh, to bounce off the 45 degree angle mirror and uh, jet out over the screen so that everything was perfectly aligned so that the shadows that the um, the mime actors in the ape suits cast would be directly behind them and you would never ever ever see them on screen yeah and we have a we have a link to some videos that go way in depth into how all the visual effects are done in this movie but like it's really impressive and you mentioned the fact that the uh the apes are actually people in ape suits which is actually they look really impressive like and they they kind of incorporate actual baby monkeys also for a little bit so baby apes baby apes okay i'm sorry but (laughs) they're actually um i mean their performances are really good like uh, for it takes you a second to realize oh yeah that is a person in there um so that's yeah yeah think think that there's a person in there when somebody gets jumped by a leopard right exactly that was terrifying yeah and that was uh, actually just a leopard who liked to play rough with its trainer um was it the trainer in the in the ape suit? I don't think it was the trainer in the ape suit. It was somebody. It was it was one of the mime actors, but the trainer was on on standby, um, and they almost wow. did it with a lion instead. Uh, I'm sure the actor was slightly relieved, only yeah. so slightly that only they went with the leopard instead. Last week we had a bear. This week we have a leopard. You know, apparently the uh, dangerous animals don't stop on the podcast. <laughs> Uh, check off our lions, tigers, and bears. We have a tiger. <laughs> okay, so we have a tiger in the life of Pi. We oh, have, that's true. We have we have a bear in uh, in the gold rush. Do we have a lion anywhere? We'll have to think about that. If you have recommendations, tweet us. You know, all of this makes for a stunning um, film, but it also makes for a stunning legacy. And this is maybe one of the most referenced films ever. Um, yeah. You see this all over the place. You see this on The Simpsons, and uh, actually, a lot of animated shows like to do that. I just had that thought, but a lot of animated shows like to uh, to reference two thousand one A Space Odyssey. But even like Community is referenced two thousand one A Space Odyssey. It's it's all and, over the place, and it's kind of sunk its way into our uh, collective imagination um, in the pop culture um, as kind of like the definitive sci-fi movie Space to movie, set yeah. up the next um that the next set of uh, sci-fi space movies including stuff like you know star wars and star trek um all the way up to interstellar from a couple years ago yeah where, which is maybe one of the closest one-to-ones um that you can think of in terms of visuals and scope and big crazy ideas and even literally just aliens influencing us um across dimensions which i have a theory that at the end uh the astronaut at the end whose name escapes me at the moment is uh dave dave is uh is actually like in the fourth dimension because he's kind of time jumping that might just be a cutting technique i'm not sure um i don't have it just gets really weird (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i will occasionally come up with a crazy theory about a film but that's just for for fun it's for lulls um We'll talk about with The Shining, uh, some people who will come up with some crazy theories for films that they just die hard believe. Um, but with 2001, like it's meant to be open ended. It's meant to be to make you question and make you think, um, and it, it definitely succeeded at that. But you know, Kubrick, when he was working on making uh, this film, 
uh, in pre-production, one of the words, one of the phrases that got tossed around a lot was the proverbial good sci-fi film. Um, and there might be an exception to this, but I think, you know, running up to this and then uh, films of the next couple decades, like, um, like Alien and Star Wars and the Star Trek movies and uh, Blade Runner, a lot of uh, sci-fi films were cheesy and campy. Like if you think about a 40s or 50s sci-fi film, you're probably thinking about a black and white giant praying mantis. Like, you know, something like yeah. that. And so a lot of those are good movies, but they are ridiculous movies. But the other thing to think about as far as the state of sci-fi at the end of the 60s is that you've just come out of basic, or you're still at the tail end of the golden age of uh, sci-fi and literature. You've got um, Bradbury and Asimov cranking out some of the most iconic science fiction stories. Um, and even uh, The Twilight Zone has just ended recently, which is kind of the epitomal science fiction television series. Um, so all, you have all of that to build on. And so you can see why so much of the great uh, sci-fi films are coming out in the next couple of years after 2001. Uh, 2001 kind of kicks it off, but it definitely has already had the foundation set uh, in literature and television and stuff like that to set up movies to be just kind of knocking out of the park for the next couple years. Yeah, yeah. And this is also a year before the moon landing. This is 1968. Right. So the whole world is thinking about space at this point. Yeah, it's all just space, space, space on the mind. Um, And some people think Kubrick faked the moon landing, but I, yeah. We'll get into that in the shine. (laughs) I don't think that, but some people think that. Anyway, but you know, it it does it does have a wide reaching effect, and you gotta love those movies that just stick in our collective imaginations like that. I mean, heck, this was even referenced in Toy Story. You know, it's all over the place. And I think we might have mentioned that in our Toy Story episode, but we'll talk about it even more with The Shining because um, Lee Unkrich from Pixar is maybe the biggest, most high profile and hopefully sanest uh, Stanley Kubrick fan. And so he just puts references all throughout Toy Story and some of the other Pixar movies that he's worked on. Um, And a lot of The Shining references. Yeah, we're really tying into that uh, Toy Story uh, episode this week. Hint, hint, That's you should true. go watch it. It's a good one. That was an emotional week for me. You should, you should go <laughs> check it out. It's a good. It's Alex a good arc. grew a lot. Yeah, it's not. It's not called Toy Story or how Alex learned to stop wearing and love Pixar for no reason. It's called that for a reason. So yeah, go go enjoy it. Enjoy enjoy the film. <laughs> enjoy enjoy the podcast. All right, so let's travel through a tunnel of lights into a strange dimension where weird things that may or may not be there are influencing uh, our everyday life and talk about The Shining from 1980. Alex, tell us what the heck is going on in this movie. Uh, right, so again, kind of like 2001, uh, not a lot of plot points to hit. Um, but A little bit more, a little bit more uh, cohesive. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, a little bit more, but not uh, not totally out there. We're not uh, jumping millions of years, at least. So our story centers around a family. Um, Jack Nicholson is the dad. Shelley Duvall is the mother. And they have a child named Danny um, who has a imaginary friend who talks through his finger and lives in his mouth um, named Tony. Um and they, they are hired to stay at the Overlook Hotel 
for the winter when the hotel closes down. Um, it was built uh, too early to really be planned well. Uh, something about the 1920s. There's there's a reason why it has to close down in the winter instead of um, instead of being accessible. Uh, and most of it has to do with the roads being closed by too much snow and it was too expensive to keep the roads open. Uh, so they're isolated in uh, this hotel for the winter when it's not open, but somebody has to stay there and make sure it doesn't fall apart, uh, make sure it is in good maintenance and ready to go for the spring season. So they agreed to do it. Um, Jack is a retired uh, high school or school teacher from Colorado, and you get the sense that he was fired and he didn't quit, um, but it's possible. He, he doesn't seem like a very stable person from the get-go of the story. Um, and there was a case, uh, there was an incident in which he was drunk and uh, managed to dislocate uh, his son's shoulder um, or break his arm, one of the two. Um, but anyway, uh, it's a pseudo, basically uh, abusive, at least emotionally abusive situation that they're in. So there's there's already a lot of conflict within the family. Uh, going up to the hotel, but, but the they hotel, don't. They don't acknowledge it as such. They they oh think no. that they're all fine. Oh yeah, they totally do. They're totally all in denial about it. Um, but there's also something funny with the hotel. The hotel uh, is the site of uh, a terrible killing uh, years ago, in which the former caretaker axe murdered his two his twin daughters and his wife. Um, and went crazy and then killed himself so a horrible murder and in the interview at the opening of the film jack is told about this and he's like ah yeah that's cool um (laughs) he he specifically says you don't have to worry about that with me (laughs) right which is horribly ironic and wonderful and he's got like that jack nicholson smirk on too so so creepy there's a reason he played the joker in a movie we already talked about (laughs) yeah right jack nicholson is uh getting some more mentions in our in our canon um still can't give michael keaton a run for his money <laughs> but but anyway once they're at the hotel danny uh while they're being shown around the hotel they're getting settled in the old staff is leaving they're moving in uh danny is introduced to the cook at the hotel um dan halloran who uh shines as well as as danny does and it's uh, some sort of supernatural power. It, it's essentially a form of a te- telepathy um, slash premonition where you can kind of pick up on uh, what other people are thinking and what other places are thinking. So you can kind of read a place as well as a person. And Danny can read that there's something wrong with this hotel, that there's something scary about being here. Um and so and he's been shown uh, through Tony, allegedly, like images of uh, blood coming out of a elevator and uh, two yeah, dead the girls famous, in a hallway. That's yeah, all fam- shown the before shot. they even get to the hotel. Yeah, the famous shot of the uh, of the blood gushing out of um, out of the elevator doors and the, the twins dead in the hall. And so they settle in to the hotel for the winter. And Shelley Duvall's character is basically doing all the work taking care of the hotel. And Jack's character is trying to write and kind of just being 
an ass to his family, and Danny is uh, exploring the hotel and trying not to be creeped out by it. He's he's doing that thing um, where he's riding around on his tricycle, which is just brilliant. Yeah. Um, and eventually, Jack uh, starts to kind of just descend, uh, give give in to the madness of um, I think partially being isolated, partially uh, being haunted, uh, partially already being kind of a psychopath. And kind of a, a medium, I guess, because I'm pretty sure that Jack shines in this movie, too, and he just doesn't know it. Yeah, that's my theory. Uh, and I'll talk about that in just a second. But eventually Jack tries to kill his family and um, horror ensues. But it takes a while to get there. Like there's a slow build um, and there's that long tension build that um, that I mentioned before in 2001. Um but yeah, that that is my theory. Is that that yes, this this hotel is haunted. Yes, something bad happened here, um, and Danny picks up on it. But I also think that Jack can pick up on it as well. But like Dan Halloran said when he was telling Danny about uh, the the power, the shining power, is that some people know they can do it and some people can't. So right. while while uh, Danny sees can can come in contact with the these. I guess ghosts, spirits, and the hotel itself uh, through Shining and is scared of it. Jack doesn't know to be scared of it because he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know he's Shining, so um, I think he's being uh, he's he's being able to interact with these spirits this way and is therefore uh, um, uh, he's susceptible to it. He's already he's already kind of crazy. Like he's already a crazy dude. Like you know Jack Nicholson. It's hard for him to not look like a serial killer. Um, <laughs> he has such an angular face it's so interesting yeah 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 it's like it's set up to be intimidating um so i think i think that is kind of what pushes him over that final edge to just being like you know what i'm gonna kill him I'm just gonna kill him gonna gonna kill him um but none of that also explains why shelly duvall's character uh wendy finally remembered her name uh why why wendy sees uh apparitions herself when she's running around although at yeah, that point all hell has part. kind of broken loose in the hotel um so so who knows who knows and we'll get to that but um basically the reason that we're all saying like i think whatever whatever is because it's so vague the whole movie is so vague at the very beginning we get a little bit of Scatman Crothers character uh, explaining shining kind of he basically says some people can shine they can see things that happened in the past or things that happen in the future um, and some people don't and some places shine and some don't uh, some show things that have happened and not a lot uh, there's there's a lot of things that have happened here and they're not all good um, but that's really the only explanation we get. And then all these weird things start happening and we try to fit it into what he said and uh, the the weird things that Tony has said. Um, and uh, but it's it's so vague and unexplained. And I think that it's a little bit more explained in the book, but we'll get to Stanley Kubrick's uh, appreciation for his source material in a second. But it's so vague in the movie that it builds that dread that you don't know what's going on and you you get a sense that there's kind of rules, but you don't know what they are. And so you're kind of it, it makes the plot and the mechanisms 
uh, and motivations of the characters as much of a maze as is thematically evident through the literal maze on the grounds and also the maze of this hotel in general. Um, and it's just really hard to weed through and is what makes it such fertile ground for so many conspiracy theories. Right, right. And there's there's that famous um, documentary, Room 237, um, in which people go in depth into these these conspiracy theories that they just believe wholeheartedly are true. And they are all over the place. They're like, uh, Stanley Kubrick is admitting that he faked the moon landing. Or Stanley Kubrick is apologizing to the Native Americans. Um, or, right, because the hotel was is, is built on a Native American burial ground. Right. Which is just thrown in there at the beginning. Right, and there's there's a few others. They're just bonkers. Yeah, someone ma- someone takes the film and projects it playing forwards and backwards at the same time, overlapping each other, and literally frame by frame analyzes where the pieces match up. I mean, people go freaking nuts on this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know they're all they're all kind of out there, and depending you if you find conspiracy theories interesting, you'll find the fil- the documentary interesting. Um, so if you think the Russians are messing with our bodily fluids, you might like that documentary. (laughs) You you definitely like that documentary. Um, I find that very funny that there's a conspiracy theorist in one of Stanley Kubrick's most famous films. And, uh, there's so many conspiracy theorists about Stanley Kubrick's films in general. And I don't know why the shining in specific takes on so many, maybe because it's one of the more ambiguous ones. And Um, it's, uh, it's also kind of more um, commercially graspable, I guess, because it kind of it follows a somewhat of a narrative plot. It just has a lot of mystery built into it. So people who might not be interested in the slow pacing of 2001 or the political commentary of Dr. Strangelove probably can get into The Shining because if you like horror films, you're going to get some of it, even though it does um, if all you're looking for is the exciting like action bits, you're going to be really disappointed for the first half or three quarters of this movie. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the, that's one of the reasons why Stanley Kubrick did this film was his last film before this one was Barry Lyndon, which has grown to a, a new amount of appreciation now, but was was kind of a flop. It was a flop at the time. People aren't in the mood for slow period pieces. Um, but uh, so he he thought he could make some money back um, for the studio and kind of generate some more cred by doing a genre film. Um, and he was like horror. He likes The Shining. So he he wants to adapt it. Um, and that's kind of the origin of the story. But the one of the reasons why it's so dang believable that uh, by so many people that these conspira- conspiracy theories just might be true is because it's Stanley Kubrick and he's so precise and so intentional with so many of his things that it's hard for anyone who follows his career or follows his work to believe that um, there could be a coincidence in any of his films. So when some guy's going back and comparing back and forth, back and forth, um, these frames playing forward and backwards, it doesn't seem crazy to him because it's Stanley Kubrick. He plans out everything. Um, which isn't entirely true. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that he came up with on the fly. Um, 
because that's how all directors work. There's kind of this mythology that's built up around him that's like he plans everything out and he does 100 takes on every shot, um, which isn't true. He he would do those, yes, but he wouldn't do it for everything. Um, in fact, uh, in 2001, apparently he came up with the idea for the famous transition as uh, he was walking back from when they, they, they shot the scene with um, uh, Moonwatcher, who's the ape who tosses the bone in the air. Um, they did that with him raised up on a platform so they could outside so they could shoot the up angle at his face. Um, but he was walking back with his, with his crew to the, uh, to the studio afterwards and he was tossing a broom, broomstick in the air. Um, and he was like, I've got an idea guys watching this broomstick (laughs) toss up in the air. So, and that's, that's how creativity works. No one can plan out everything a hundred percent. Like, if you have everything planned out 100% and don't allow for any improv- improvisation or any creativity, I, I don't feel like you're really being creative. You're just being, like, a um, a technician at that point. But, um, so, so, you know, just kind of debunking maybe a little bit that myth around uh, Kubrick that he was a robot. Yeah, and, you know, one of the famous instances of improvisation in The Shining is... Um the child who plays Danny's invention of uh, the finger for Tony, which is a huge part in the movie. Every time Tony, this uh, basically you get the sense of this spirit that possesses uh, Danny at certain points. But whenever he's talking, Danny holds up his finger and kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, wags it or whatever um, as the voice. But that was totally made up. That's not in the book or anything. And that's why um, the actor was cast as Danny. Um, and so, you know, again, directing is uh, it's a balance of having a plan and incorporating new elements, like even up to the moment of rolling the camera into the film, like we saw with uh, Buck Turgeson's uh, tuck and roll in the middle of his speech that he just he just went with and kept talking. Yeah, um, which is one of the reasons why um, Kubrick will selectively drive actors to the brink which is something he does in this film. Yeah, because that's the other side. Is when he knows he wants something, he will do it over and over and over and over and over again until he gets it. And sometimes the only way to get it is by doing it over and over and over and over again. Uh, so, for example, as Jack Nicholson's character is getting more and more neurotic and, and uh, insane, basically Kubrick would, regardless of how the performance was in the first several takes he would take it over and over and over again up to over a hundred times to the point where jack nicholson would just get so frustrated and so um mad that like you were saying before he would just start doing crazy things and literally just freak out on camera just to see what what stanley kubrick was wanting uh because he was so worn down that's how he improvised here's johnny that was not in the script he came up with that now it's one moment. of the most famous lines. Yeah, 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 and um, and that I I think it, it's also kind of uh, famous slash infamous about this film that Kubrick had a really great working relationship with Jack Nicholson and a really terrible working relationship with Shelley Duvall, um, and part of that comes from just like the different way that different actors work, and you know, as a director, you have to kind of learn to adjust to uh different actors so you're giving them what they need so they can give you what you need but kubrick just does things kubrick's way um 
which yeah, you know, and- he's he's a genius, so he can get away with it. And Jack Nicholson is is famous for kind of trying a different thing with every take. Like he'll he'll go here and he'll go there, and you can see how that kind of um, that kind of work style would work well with Kubrick's a hundred take emphasis like you get a hundred different things and they each get progressively crazier and then you have all the choices in the world once you get to the cutting room um but with Shelley Duvall like Shelley Duvall did not enjoy this and she's gone on record many times about how you know hard it was to work on this film um partially because it was long every day like there were just excessive takes every day and partially because you know it went on forever it's like over a 200 day shoot um and they shot it, thankfully, in sequence. Um, and if you if you look closely, you can notice like Danny grows over the course of the film. He's bigger at the end than he was at the beginning. Yeah, that's unusual to shoot a film in the order that the film uh, is played back at. You usually kind of jump around to make the logistics work. Yeah. And all of that is to say, all these extreme um, kind of techniques that Kubrick employs, shooting a film in order, which is expensive, um driving actors uh to the brink which is uh mean borderline abusive bit crazy and not guaranteed to work but he makes it work um and you know part of that the reason it works is that he's he's kubrick like he's he just is the director to make that happen he is a genius he can get away with it um so you know if you're if you're like us and studying these filmmakers to eventually apply their techniques to your own work. Um, the thing I would not take from Kubrick would be uh, driving your actors to the brink. Yeah, it's not the uh, recommended way to work and uh, it's probably not the right way to do things just from an ethical standpoint. Um, but I mean, that's how, I mean, we're just kind of exploring the ways that Kubrick got the performances that he wanted. And Shelley Duvall uh, is accurately terrified in all of her shots. And that's, it's, it gets a little bit grating, honestly, as it goes on. But I mean, that's, that's kind of the mental state that she was in, uh, especially by the end of the film, uh, in and out of character. Yeah. Yeah. You can only imagine like having to shoot, um, like just like the emotional arc of having to, uh, you know, typically, like you said, you, you shoot a film out of order. So you kind of get to bounce around emotionally. Um, you know, one day you're calm, one day you're angry, one day you're screaming. Um, but on this film, like it, it ramps up. So towards the end of the film, not only are you uh, just tired from working for so dang long, you know, so many 12, 14 hour days in a row, um, but by the end, like you're having to act these super distressful scenes every single day. And I can only imagine how wearing that is. Um, but like you said, it, it worked. <laughs> it worked very well. Yeah. You know, and it again, this film stands as a classic. It's a classic horror film that impacted the way horror films were made for the next um, for the next you know, few decades going through now. And another kind of technical tidbit, uh, a way that Kubrick presents or puts the audience in a bit of a psychosis mood of just just the way that he uses film technique. Um, and I don't know how much we've talked about this one before, but that's the 180 degree rule, uh, which is basically this idea that 
if you have two actors or two points of action, things that are happening, you can draw a line between them and keep the camera on one side of the line. Because if you flip the camera around and go on the other side, then you kind of lose your spatial awareness and uh, you're because you're seeing a different side of the room and you're not exactly sure where you are. So the easiest way to keep your audience on track with what's going on is to keep your camera on one side of the 180 degree line. But as most rules, there are specific instances where it is advantageous to break the rule. And The Shining is one of the most famous examples of breaking the 180 degree rule. Uh, so for instance, there's a famous scene in a bathroom where uh, Jack Nicholson is um, talking to potentially the ghost of the former caretaker who murdered his family. Uh, and the, the camera switches across the line repeatedly. And even at the, the part where Jack is breaking down the door to get at his wife with an axe, it cuts almost the instant that the axe hits the door or the swing is at its apex. Um, it cuts from one side of Jack to the other side. And uh, it's just all these things that just kind of almost subconsciously like throw your brain off. You can still tell what's going on, but it just feels a little off. And so this is the, the classic example of learn the rules so you can break the rules. And this is where Kubrick, who again is one of the most technically proficient directors out there, um, knows what the rules are and exactly how and when to break them for the effect that he's going for. Right, right. Um, and another another uh, kind of technical thing, actually an innovation that, uh, that was used on this film, um, in 1980, the Steadicam was still was, was almost brand new. It was it was fairly new. Um, and if you don't know what a Steadicam is, it is a, a camera that is uh, not locked down. It is on a kind of gimbal arm of sorts that is then attached to a vest that a camera operator will use. So a, a trained operator. A, a trained Steadicam operator will then use the Steadicam and then they can walk around and move around um, to, to get a nice moving shot that isn't locked down to kind of like a tracking shot, which is literally on tracks um, or a dolly. And it's not or, bumpy. Yeah, yeah. And it's not bumpy at the same time because it's on that it's on that gimbal. Um, and it was still fairly new at the time. And mostly up until The Shining, it was used for running, it was used for running um, and getting nice running shots here and there. Um, but in The Shining, Stanley Kubrick takes a look at it and is like, I can use this for nice long shots. And we see a lot of it um, for nice, really long shots where the yeah. camera can just go anywhere. Um, maybe most notably when we're following uh, Danny around on his tricycle as he's riding throughout the, uh, um, throughout the hallways of the hotel. Um, and you, you see that... Uh, you're down, you're basically below his eye level, uh, behind him, following him around, kind of almost a, a, a near subjective viewpoint, um, at the same time, a little bit removed. Um, and that's a, that's another thing that could really, uh, drive up the number of takes on a film is, uh, just getting the shot exactly right. Whether or not it be, uh, getting somebody's face exactly centered in a frame or, uh, or getting the steady cam exactly right, and you can imagine once you 
introduce all of those uh, technical uh, hoops to jump through to make shot correct, all of those hurdles, um, with a director like Stanley Kubrick, just how hard it would be to get it exactly right to his uh, to his satisfaction. Yeah, and that goes into the multiple takes again. It's not it's not only to kind of wear actors down. That's a specific use, but it's also just uh, utilitarian to get the exact shot that he wants because getting an exact shot and exact framing on a steady cam is very difficult because it is very floaty and, and stuff like that. So it's not as precise as moving a dolly to a mark and stopping and it being the same every time. When you're just walking around and your camera is kind of swiveling, it's much harder to get uh, the the level of preciseness that Stanley Kubrick called for. And another interesting thing that uh, we see in probably almost all of these movies is that Kubrick um, uses backlighting and he uses a lot of um, ambient and natural lighting. But in this film, there's a shot where uh, Jack starts to kind of uh, move towards Wendy in a very menacing way. And he's almost entirely for the entire shot. Again, it's a steady shot um, where the camera is following him as he walks around this huge room but there are gigantic windows behind him and he's backlit almost the whole time, which is like kind of filmmaking 101. Don't don't backlight your subject and silhouette them. But he uses it to make Jack even more intimidating because he's almost completely in shadow the whole time. Yeah. And this was um, this was a film that, again, much like 2001, kind of was slow out of the gate. It was not considered good by a lot of people who went and saw it right away. Um but again, much like 2001, now it is a, considered a classic. It's considered a tipple of the horror genre. It's considered um, a big shift changer, a big trendsetter in the horror genre. It's been referenced in a whole bunch of movies um, and TV shows just like 2001 has. Um, but the, the movie itself, and maybe one of the reasons why it was such a slow build out of the gate, is that it's, it's a very slow movie. And Kubrick, Kubrick likes making slow movies. Um, but we he always saw makes that with them 2001. Slow. Right. He always makes them slow for a reason. And arguably more plot happens in The Shining than in 2001. Actually, like definitely a lot more plot happens in The Shining. Um but it does it does have that slow, slow build where all of the action is jam-packed into like the last 45 minutes of the film. And the first, you know, three quarters of the film, first two thirds of the film is all like atmosphere setting and tension building and just kind of generally building this feeling of creepy um, that I feel is really important to the film. Um, and beyond that, like just in terms of... Um, studying the pacing of a film, studying the tempo of a film. Um, tempo doesn't just exist uh, on its own. It exists in uh, comparison. So um, a scene can feel long or can feel short in comparison to the rest of the scenes in the film. So making the, uh, the first two-thirds of the movie um, slower makes the action in the end of the movie feel all that more action-y comparatively to the um, slow build tension that we get in the first part of the movie. And it's kind of interesting because depending on what you are expecting going into the movie, you're either 
you some people can fall into the camp of either being disappointed with the first three fourths of the movie or being disappointed with the last fourth of the movie. Because if you are going in looking for like the scary action uh, horror bits, like where you know the the terror is raining down on you, that all happens in like the last forty five minutes of the movie, and you get little like literally flashes of it throughout the beginning of the movie. But really, the beginning is just tone setting. It's just setting this this um, feeling that Jack isn't right. This hotel isn't right. The the characters, there's something off and there's something going to happen. There's something that has happened in this hotel and there's something that's going to happen uh, again very soon. Um, and so if you're just looking for those exciting parts, then you get kind of bored just watching them in this hotel slowly uh, going crazy. But on the other hand, if you're coming at it from uh, like 2001, like looking for the Kubrickian atmosphere build, then you get all of that at the beginning and then some of it starts to feel less um, scary and more traditional like oh, okay I've seen this stuff towards the end when Jack is actually chasing his family around with an axe um, and then also the bit where Shelley Duvall starts seeing just like flashies, flashes of scary images towards the end um, that don't really make sense. They feel just kind of thrown in there because they're scary. They're kind of horror filmish. So it's it's kind of interesting how there's a little bit of a break once once uh well once Jack Nicholson's character breaks and uh, the the difference in the pacing from the from most of the film to the very end of the film. Yeah, yeah. Because at the end, like really, things come very very fast. Yeah, like in the just in the number of things that happen um like the the one actual murder that we see in the film <laughs> happens at the very very like end the last 20, 15 or 20 minutes yeah which is actually pretty shocking for a a horror film that is so scary to have one death right um on screen that happens on screen like there's a bunch of people who died before the movie started um and that's pretty key to the plot but um, well, technically, if you really think about it, there's a bunch of movie. There's a bunch of people who died before the start of every movie, but that's that's not the point. Um, All right, getting meta, getting meta. But yeah, yeah, it's 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 remarkable how scary this movie is. How like enjoyably tense it is, without hewing to all of the. Um, all of tropes. the horror tropes that we're so used to in the West of like slasher films and the like. Um, Especially and, a movie that's set up as um, like from in the first five minutes, we get this idea that a caretaker went crazy and tried to murder his family. So we know that that's coming, which is like the most basic slasher film plot. But it again, it doesn't fall into those slasher film tropes until maybe the end again. So I feel like we should talk about uh, the adaptation that this movie is, and actually, all of our all of our films today are adaptations. Um, a lot of the things Kubrick did were adaptations. Um, so let's 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 make this overall notes now. Um, We've already spoiled all these movies, but <laughs> we did. Now we, we're going to we just, just kind of recklessly about. spoiled them. Um, but I feel like that doesn't ruin the experience of watching these movies specifically. Because there's yeah. things that you have to see, especially 2001, um, to enjoy the ridiculousness of 
uh, Doctor Strangelove, like you got to see that. And The yeah. Shining, you know, it's hard to describe. Something isn't as scary when you describe it rather than when you experience it. Yeah, um, these are experience movies like Stalker and uh, yeah. and Life of Pi. Some of these other ones that you know the the description is never going to be live up to the the feeling of watching it. Yeah, just to apologize for shameless spoiling earlier, um, <laughs> which we didn't we didn't uh, forewarn about. No, no. Well, we'll I don't know. We'll tag it or something. Who knows? Um, anyway. Uh, so yeah, so this, uh, The Shining is based off of the Stephen King no- novel of the same name, but, uh, a lot of it was changed for the movie. Kubrick changed it a whole bunch to do what he wanted it to do in the film, what he thought would work and tell the story that he wanted to tell. Um, he liked the premise of the story, but he changed a lot of it. Um, and Stephen King, uh, did not like that. He hates the movie. He's very open about it. He hates this movie. And like I mentioned earlier, he went on to uh, um, produce or sponsor or whatever a uh, 1990s version of The Shining that he was much closer to the original story of the book. Um, And I think maybe one of the reasons that it's such a personal thing for Stephen King is that The Shining uh, was something he wrote to deal with his own issues at the time, including um, alcoholism, uh, so it was a deeply personal book, um, and to to have some of the key points changed uh, really upset him. I think especially the fact that uh, Jack became like just this crazy dude from the get go who's just waiting to break. Rather, yeah, he's than, never sympathetic or relatable yeah, like at all. Not at all. Um, rather than like the uh, kind of every man he is in the book who is tormented and haunted by um the the uh, paranormal uh stuff going on in the hotel to the point where he finally snaps and goes crazy but he's really driven to it like he's not a bad guy he's just tortured by these demons um a metaphor for alcoholism um that that that's taken away in the in the kubrick version of the film uh which, which I guess upset King. But I think the, the main takeaway from this is that uh, Kubrick made it his own and it worked. Um, he did it confidently and he, he did it well and he just did it. And I think that's okay to take a, um, a premise of a story and uh, make it work on screen in a different medium which has different, um, different values for different kinds of storytelling than uh, a novel does and uh, adapted to screen, adapted to that more visual, um, the the visual and audio uh, depiction of a story and, and make it work and make it your own too. Like this is distinctly Kubrick. Even if you didn't know this was based off a book, like it's distinctly Kubrick. It's very much his style. Right, those long tracking shots like we've talked about the very slow atmospheric tone to it like we saw in 2001 and stuff like that it's all kind of uh you know gives that auteurish feel like we've talked about so much it's like these are the things that distinguish a stanley kubrick film and also uh, a fun little tidbit that people have noticed is this thing uh dubbed the kubrick stare um where characters who are in some kind of 
mental distress will kind of have this strange stare looking out from under their eyebrows with their face, their mouth in a really uh, kind of just blank look. And then the camera will just be either straight on them or zooming in a little bit. And we get that uh, a lot in The Shining and uh, it comes up in uh, several other of his films, not as much in 2001, maybe a little bit in the white room at the end. It's possible. It's possible. Although I feel like that I've always felt like the um, the astronauts in 2001 are kind of just like a stand in for the idea of humans rather than like super fleshed out 3D characters. Like I, I don't feel like they have a lot of emotion in the film. Like Dave doesn't blink very much when he's dealing with uh, with how going haywire. Like he, he and, and part of that might just be the fact that he's not trying not to give Hal anything to go on. Right. But um, I, I've always got that thought that they are they are stand ins, they are allegories for um, the idea of man as he travels out to the stars. Yeah, they're pretty, pretty blank slates. And then, you know, it's interesting Monolith to compare joke? that with <laughs> and then comparing that with Hal, who is literally um, an emotionless robot, and they make that a point to say in the movie that he uh, puts on the artifice of emotion, but it's all just programmed. But going back to this idea of adaptations, um, like you were talking about, where we can see that Kubrick definitely takes the source material and kind of will just do whatever it takes to make it his own. And each one of these films uh, kind of shows that in a different way. Um, so we talked about how The Shining, he definitely took it and warped it in a way that Stephen King, the original author, uh, was not pleased with. Whereas in 2001, we're seeing him working with the author of the story and the author of the story literally crafting a novel alongside the creation of this film. So those are like being fed off of very well um, and and collaboratively. And then also in uh, Dr. Strangelove, Peter George, uh, who wrote the book, was also involved in the creation of the screenplay and so again that's a very kind of collaborative even though it has it changed a whole lot from the book and turned like switched genres even in the development of the film it was still kind of in line with the author's uh, direction because he's part of that process so we see those three different uh, kind of interactions that Stanley Kubrick has with source material yeah yeah it's almost like um he takes like the kernel of the idea and then just kind of runs with it. And sometimes that's in with collaboration with, um, with the original artist, the original writer. And sometimes it's not. Um, and I kind of, I kind of like that, that he respected the, uh, the writers on 2001 and Dr. Strangelove, um, enough to, and, and valued their creative input enough to bring them in and help them have them help shape, um, the the plot and i don't know or, or shape the story and i don't know what the deal was with the shining that that didn't happen on the shining um but i i don't know who knows that's that's a good question maybe kubrick and king just didn't like each other from the get-go and then they, that kind of all started from there they didn't work together on the script yeah they had a bigger beef between the two of them um but it's an interesting contrast. It's an interesting contrast between the two. And it's also interesting to see 
how a technical perfectionist um, and somebody who aches over all of the aspects of making a film goes about finding the story for a film itself, like goes about finding those kernels um, of an idea from which he can he can make something that's brilliant. Um, and that's that's really interesting to me, especially that he didn't like just pull them from uh, thin air, which isn't really how creativity works, but it's how a lot of people think it works. Um, right. But but they're not like that. He, and he was very, I mean, you know, he almost everything he did was an adaptation. I can't think of anything off the top of my head that wasn't an adaptation of some sort. But uh, Right, so that puts, I mean, he's different in the fact of, you know, the uh, Christopher Nolans or Quentin Tarantinos who will create their own uh, unique material that they have written and then they direct. And so they definitely have their fingerprint on it from the very genesis of the of the project. So there there is that uh, I guess it's it's an interesting point about Kubrick that we haven't delved into before of Kubrick having material that is not his own and then changing it and and still keeping that auteurism of having his own fingerprint on it. And we talked about that a little bit uh, in a different way with Kenneth Branagh, who kept the source material uh, and stayed faithful to it. I mean, you're working with Shakespeare, so you're keeping the same you're keeping the words, you're keeping everything and your auteurism has to come through uh, in merely the the performances and the camera direction. Whereas here where there is a level of malleability to the story and the material that is being worked on, either it's being molded by the original creator or is being molded independently and the consequences of that. And there's probably uh, a conversation to be had about, you know, where the line is between respecting the author's original intent and how, especially for a living author like Stephen King, how much influence that should have on the final product. Um, but we, it's probably a much larger conversation than uh, we can fit today. Yeah, yeah. And it certainly is interesting to see that difference between um, taking a kernel and growing it into something new and... Um, taking a work that you like and breathing new life into it as a visual audio representation. Um, but you're right, that's not a discussion for today. And let's talk about uh, the future. Uh, specifically, what are we going to talk about next week, Jonathan? Yeah, so this is actually kind of part one of a loose two-week series because next week we're going to be talking about uh, Andrei Tarkovsky, who is a Russian director we've looked at before with Stalker in our Russia week, um, again, from the World Tour. And I've been bringing that movie up because um, kind of bearing the lead for next week because there's a lot of similarities between these two directors. They both deal heavily in very atmospheric and uh, implied thematic works. And so that's what we're going to be looking at next week with uh, three films that... Uh, more or less loosely mirror the 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 ones that we looked at uh today so what films are those alex well first up we have ivan's childhood from 1962 then we have solaris from 1972 and lastly we have the semi-autobiographical the mirror from 1975 yeah so it'll be very interesting we have another black and white war film another uh kind of cerebral and mystical space film and then the 
kind of autobiographical. We'll see. I don't know too much about the mirror, but I'm excited to watch it and talk about it. Yeah. How weird would Tarkovsky's The Shining have been? Uh, it would have been crazy. Yeah. And it would have uh, been much more colorful, I think. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> we will also be posting a poll this week on the Twitter about um, our episode two weeks from now and what movies we will be covering on that episode. Um, and it is our Banff week. And we are going to be talking about uh, different movie Banffs. Um, and it'll, it should be an interesting week. It should be a very fun week. Very actiony, very gung ho. Yeah, a break um, from all these cerebral, um, uh, vague, <laughs> ambiguous movies. Right, right. Just, just some good old shoot 'em ups. But well done, shoot 'em ups with uh, solid character arcs and interesting characters and great camera work. So we will see what you guys pick, and then we will tell you what we're going to talk about, which will be what you guys pick. Like. <laughs> this isn't a false democracy. We're not going to pull that's a not, fast one on you. Yeah, we're not, we're not switching the ballot box. But anyway, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlings.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next week. All right, see ya. <sighs> sorry, sorry, my point wasn't more exciting, Alex.